It's Wednesday, November 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day to you. Thank you to all the veterans out there yes. across America and around the world who, who tune in to uh, Market Foolery. Thank you for all that you do. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of retail today because there's a lot going on in retail, <laughs> but we're actually going to start with some earnings from Middleby. Middleby, if you're unfamiliar, the uh, basically the restaurant supplier. I mean, yeah. pretty much uh, good chance that if you've been to a restaurant in the United States in the last 12 months, they've got some Middleby equipment back there preparing your food. Yeah. Uh, third quarter revenue up 11 percent. They missed on profit by two cents a share, and the stock is down 10 percent. That's that. That seems like an overreaction for. Not a very big miss. Possibly. I mean, I think so. The biggest question we always have with Middleby, quarter in and quarter out, uh, is in regard to organic revenue growth. So that's, that's, you know, revenue growth that is on their own without any acquisitions. And with businesses like Middleby, Middleby is a, is an, it's, it's, it's an acquisition based company. I mean, they, their strategy is to grow via acquisition. And, and it's not to say that that's a bad thing by any means. I mean, if you look at what Middleby has done to date, uh, Salim Masool, the CEO there, has just, Developed a phenomenal track record in, in an obvious uh, in an obvious uh, you know uh, penchant for for going ahead and making uh, good acquisitions. Uh, the, the problem is as these acquisitive companies grow, as they get bigger, you know that hurdle gets higher, right? I mean, it all is based on that next great acquisition. The market's not really looking at the acquisitions they made; they're thinking more about what are the acquisitions they're gonna make. And so, what Middleby has historically been very involved, as you mentioned, uh, in commercial food, right? Commercial food preparation, ovens, uh, you know, soda fountain machines, stuff like that. They're making a move into the consumer side of the business, and they've recently acquired Viking, and we've talked about that before. Uh, and, and they also are making some additional acquisitions to, to get more into the consumer's kitchen. Um, and, and so, those are, while they're very young acquisitions, uh, they haven't exactly um, had a chance to really play out yet. I, I think that when you look at the shares today, when you look at the way the stock is selling off, uh, that puts shares at around 27 times full-year estimates. And for a company that's not growing their earnings per share quite at that rate, I mean, it could be argued that Middleby is still possibly even a little bit on the expensive side, particularly when you when you consider what they do. I mean, they're making those big industrial-sized ovens, so it's it's somewhat it's somewhat capital-intensive. Um, the nice thing is, I tell you, and it's the thing I go back to with these guys is they have this no quibble warranty. Where basically they say, okay, you're a restaurant concept, you want, you need new equipment. We're going to sell you this equipment, and if any time within this first year, it, it's not meeting your needs, you don't like it, you just return it to us. We'll take it, no questions asked, no charge. You would take it right back. Now, there aren't many players out of this space that can really do that. They can't afford to do that, and so I think Salim Basul, much like. Your other customer-centric CEOs like Jeff Bezos, like Reed Hastings, he understands. I think the value of really developing that sort of trusting relationship with his with his uh, customers. And so, what we've seen to date is is just a great uh, stock for shareholders. I think that today's sell-off it makes sense. Do I think this is something that is is there's a fundamental problem with middle the business? Absolutely not. Um, but again, I mean, it's one where we have to pay attention to those acquisitions going forward because that's how this company is going to be judged. You know how in the Olympics, in sports like diving and gymnastics, there's the degree of difficulty? Yeah. And so, you attempt a more difficult dive or gymnastics move, and if you nail it, you're going to get bonus points for that. I feel like Salim Basul um, gets no points 
from the market for the strategy that he has largely executed. Because we've talked before, acquisitions are tough to pull off well. Yeah. And if you're going to pursue a strategy where you say, this is our basic business strategy, we're going to be an acquisitive company, you're not, you're, I mean, fairly or unfairly, you're not going to get any bonus points from the market. But let's be clear, it's not easy to do. No, it's and not. And <laughs> we've seen time and time again of companies that make an acquisition and it doesn't go well, or it takes twice as long to integrate the new company as they initially thought. And it's just, I don't know, that's that's one of the things I always keep in mind about Middleby, that, nope, they don't get any bonus points for it. But let's be clear, this is a skill set that is rare in company executives. It is. I, I think you're completely right there. And while they don't get bonus points for it, you know, I think I think you know on the flip side of that, I, I, a lot of a lot of business, a lot of investors out there really do hold these types of businesses up to a bit of a higher standard. They they put them under a little bit more scrutiny because of the fact that they you know they are constantly going to be looking for acquisitions, and that's how you know that's the strategy of the business and how they're going to grow. So so a lot of times, investors, investment houses, funds, what have you, they'll look at businesses like this and they'll hold. They'll hold. They'll be a little bit more skeptical, even even in the face of someone like Salim Basula, who has obviously a very good track record. Just because it it, it is proven time and time again, it's very difficult to do. Um, I think it speaks very highly to to what uh, Salim has has built today. Uh, you know, he he is someone we've had the chance to interview a number of times here, and, and he and Tom Gardner um, obviously have have had a good uh, chance to work together in, in some capacity, and and so I mean we we think very highly of him. He's a nice guy. He obviously knows that business uh, inside and out. And, and again, I think as long as he's there, uh, I, I expect to see them continue to do well because, like you said at the very beginning, I mean, pretty much any anywhere you go to eat. Middleby has a role in that in in some capacity, and, and that's not going to be anything that changes really anytime soon. Ovens, <laughs> restaurant ovens are very tough to disrupt. Macy's third quarter profits came in higher than expected, but sales fell five percent, and they lowered guidance for the full fiscal year. And when this earnings season kicked off, and we talked about what what are you watching, what are you looking for, I said the thing I'm the most interested in is what is the retail guidance heading into the holiday quarter and at least in the case of Macy's it is not looking good and the stock is down 13% this morning no and i tell you i was looking at this i don't think it's any accident that we're seeing a fall off in businesses like Macy's and Bed Bath and Beyond that for so long they've re- they've relied on that physical presence uh, being sort of anchors in in shopping malls and 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 whatnot you know, I mean, you see sort of the fall off in your Macy's and Bed Bath and Beyonds really offset by such a tick up in businesses like Wayfair.com, Amazon.com. Now, Wayfair, forget about the 14% drop those shares took yesterday. I think the stock's up like 7% today as as we speak. So it is coming back a little bit, but but it was a good quarter they turned in. I mean, every metric is pointing in the right direction. And and Amazon, of course, also turned in a very strong quarter. So I just think it's very telling. We're seeing um, I mean, we're definitely seeing sort of the the way of the future here. I mean, consumers' behavior is changing, and and I think the more the more quarters like this we see from businesses like Macy's, the more we can start to sort of see. Okay, maybe Jeff Bezos isn't such a dummy after all. Maybe <laughs> investing all that money back in the business, maybe he actually has a strategy there. I mean, I. Being facetious, obviously, because we love Amazon and we do get that strategy, and I think really we we have the luxury of being able to look at it with a little bit more of a you know a longer timeline, so to speak. But I think that's also what Wayfair is doing. I mean, you read through their call, and they are very much 
building that business in the model of an Amazon. Uh, and so, you know, I think whenever you know to slow down for the holiday season and you're a retailer, man, you are toast. And over the past five years, if you're a Macy's shareholder, you're feeling pretty good right up until about July of this year, where shares just fell off. I was going to say, they, for a while there, Macy's stock was having a good run. Yeah. They appeared to do a very good job of managing their inventory. Um, also, their physical footprint. I mean, it just it really seemed like they've got some smart operators at the top because you, for for whatever else is going on with general retailers, it is to a very large degree about how well do you operate, how well do you manage your inventory, uh, how smart are your decisions when it comes to. Expanding your footprint, et cetera, et cetera. And Macy's has, like you said, over the last five years or so, they've done a very good job of that, but kind of taking it in the teeth today. Yeah. And I think maybe with Macy's, there were a number of things that people were kind of giving it a little bit of credit for in just, you know, the Macy's brand. I think, like you said, historically speaking, they've done very well and they do have a tremendous physical presence. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's really interesting to see even on, on today's call with Macy's. Uh, CEO Terry Lundgren, who historically doesn't even show up on those conference calls, was on the call today. Now, if I saw something that I saw a statistic on Twitter, if it's correct, this was his first conference call that he attended in a number of years. Um, and so, if that is in fact correct, I mean, then that shows you, I think, even he recognizes uh, that they are in a bit of a dire situation. But again, I mean, I think, you know, with, with Macy's, I think people were thinking there's a brand there. Um, there's even a lot of real estate. They have a lot of real estate. They own more than half the stores. Uh, and so, there was the thinking, at least, that they may look at that real estate and, and consider some type of a REIT spinoff or something, you know, like like what Darden Restaurants just recently did or is, is in the process of doing. And they, they said in the, in the quarterly report today, they're not going to do that right now. That's not going to be the focus. Instead, they have this strategy in place that really is going to kind of guide the turnaround. You know, we talked last week about Whole Foods and they recognize their headwinds and they have like nine point strategy that they're going to address here. Now, Macy's <laughs> Macy's has a strategy which with the acronym is kind of creepy. The acronym is MOM. So it's their MOM strategy. Now, you know, I mean it just kind of sounds weird. MOM standing for MOM what? standing for let's 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 address what MOM stands for because this is where I think it becomes a little bit more concerning. Um, the first M is for my Macy's. And they're focusing on localization and personalization, taking those Macy's wherever they are and making those Macy's cater more towards the regions in which they are. That seems to make sense. It makes sense to a degree. The O stands for omnichannel. And so we talk a lot about online commerce and physical commerce and being able to sort of order online and pick up in store. So basically, what Macy's does now is they refer to everything just as this omnichannel. They don't even break out online sales anymore. The estimate are that they do about 15% of their business online today. Uh, but but focusing on the omni-channel, developing that e-commerce business, the the pickup in store, making the in-store experience more uh, magical. And that that magical leads me to the next M, the final M, is magic selling. And this is where it gets a little fluffy uh, because they're basically focusing on making the experiences in the store not only magical, but making it magical beyond the store setting. So, I mean, they're talking about just the feeling that you get from being associated with Macy's, 
you know, having sort of you know the digital, the market, the the, the e-commerce presence, where you know you feel like whether you're at your computer or in a store, that it's a great experience. And, and magic is the word that they use. And it seems like they could be kind of overthinking this one a little bit. But, I was um, with them right up until the magic selling. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I was the localization I was, and the omni sell. Like I'm, I'm nodding along to both of those. But you lost me, Macy's, when it, you. Started talking about magic. The magic is kind of where I got lost as well, and and maybe there was something magical about that back in the day when that big box retail store was such a big deal, right? I mean, you remember when we were kids, and and there was the mall and these big places where you go. And Christmas was a time where they would decorate these things out, and I mean, maybe there was a, a feeling of of magic to a degree and being able to go. <laughs> go go there, but but I I just it seems like it's a bit of a stretch. But that's the strategy, the the mom strategy, and that's basically what we're going to be able to look at here in the coming quarters to sort of judge them. Um, but again, I mean, I I, I kind of go back to that the writing is sort of on the wall here, right? With businesses like Wayfair and Amazon, and just consumers' behavior is changing, and I don't think Macy's is is necessarily um, you know keep keeping a step ahead of the game here. It's Veterans Day here in the U.S. In China, it is Singles Day, and for those unfamiliar, Singles is Singles Day is basically the opposite of Valentine's Day. It was a holiday created so that bachelors and bachelorettes in China could celebrate single life, sure. largely by shopping. I'm going to buy something for myself. <laughs> I'm going to buy something for me, um, <laughs> and it's big business. This it is. is this is bigger than. Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined in terms of in terms of online shopping. Alibaba doing more than 14 billion in sales in one day. Yeah. Because of that. And you know what? Alibaba needs it. Yeah. They need that because their stock is still trading below the IPO of just over a year ago. So they need all the singles day that they can get. Yeah, they need all the singles they can get too, right? I mean, they need. Uh, I tell you what, they really need it. I mean, I think this is an interesting business for a number of reasons. I mean, it is by far and away the, the market leader in Chinese e-commerce, and and Jack Ma is a really smart guy who has a neat vision in trying to turn China more into an importer. I mean, we know China more or less as the place where we. Have thing we that's how we kind of get our things that we buy around here. I mean, Chinese, you know, they import a lot of stuff to the United States. Jack Ma is trying to turn China into an actual importer of goods from the United States, Russia, Brazil, wherever around the world. And it seems like that's even playing out. I saw some pretty, uh, pretty big numbers there in regard to the shoppers on on Alibaba's platform that that were buying goods from outside of China. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, you know, I mean, I I always look at investing in China directly with a a healthy dose of skepticism. I mean, I've I've, I've I see no reason other I, to, you know I see no reason to really not look at it with with a dose of skepticism because it's just not as transparent. We don't know a lot of the, of the culture there. Even when we get boots on the ground there, you still you're just you don't understand exactly you know the culture unless you're from there. Uh, and so I think there there is a bit of a there is a bit of a disconnect there. And then if you if you just look at their ownership structure, I mean their ownership structure, the the chart visually is just enough to give you a headache. And so when it's tough to connect the dots, and, and ultimately you can kind of look at that and say, well, really shareholders' interests aren't the top priority here, and and that's fine. They don't have to be, but but investors should know that going in, um, you know, to to a business like this, it's. It's a big company. I mean, I feel like if you're going to invest in China, invest in the market leaders. Alibaba is certainly one of them. 
but but it's you know again this is one where you you don't make it an overweight part of your portfolio and it, it's it's something where you you know that's a higher risk going in the chart of the day and i realize this is an audio podcast so i apologize for invoking a chart it's got a lot of red and green <laughs> from uh, from cowan research uh, that put out, cowan and company that put out a chart of retail stocks listed by short interest so just how many investors out there and to what percent are they shorting a stock and at one end of the spectrum you've got the likes of american eagle uh, Fossil, the watchmaker, and number one on the list, Abercrombie and Fitch, which has the highest short interest. Highest short interest, thirty-three percent short interest. And for long time listeners of this podcast, they are unsurprised that number one on this list is Abercrombie and Fitch. I was also struck by the fact that at the other end of the spectrum, coming in at one percent short interest, <laughs> is Costco. Who, who in the world? <laughs> what investor, presumably an experienced investor or investors? Who's looking at the universe of stocks, and in particular the universe of retail stocks, and pointing at Costco and going, "That one? Oh yeah, I'm sure that's who I'm going to bet against." (laughs) Can we check on them? Can we find out who this is and check to see if they fell down and hit their head on something? It's possible. I imagine it's probably just a function of market liquidity and perhaps someone hedging against something else. Because I mean, to your point, like shorting is one of those games where you get a lot of questions about shorting on Twitter, and my response is always the same: "Is like, look, you can be 100% right." In your thesis on shorting a stock, and you can still have your ass handed to you. I mean, like literally, like you can lose it all. I mean, you can just get completely shot. Well, you can you can you can be a hundred percent correct, but you can be off on the timing. Yeah, like, well, it's, yeah. It's not just the thesis; it's the timing. You got to be perfect on the timing. And there are going to be a lot of parties working work or a lot of fa- a lot of forces working against you there too. So shorting is not for the faint of heart. And and I mean I think to your point about Costco, it sure seems like there are a lot easier shorts out there than that. I mean, to that point, I I will flip that on its head a little bit and say that Costco, you could you could argue that the stock is certainly fully priced. I mean, it is yeah. it is not a cheap stock by any means. And and when you look at Costco. Uh, you know, management has sort of this this belief that one day they'll be able to make the, the international presence they can make as large as the domestic presence. And now that that's about a seventy thirty split. I, I mean, some of us on the MDP uh, MDP team are a little bit skeptical of that. But but to your point, it's a very well managed company, a lovely business with a rabid loyal uh, customer base, an awesome subscription model that they they offer a lot of value to their to their customers. They've remained very consistent. It's a great place to work. Employees seem very happy. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to short something, I mean, God, I think Costco would have to be like the last one on the list. Uh, our man Dan Boyd is behind the glass, but joining him behind the glass today, it's our friend Toby Bordelon and his dad Gary, who's visiting very, from Florida. So, so thank you guys for coming in. Welcome, guys. Uh, and again, thank you. I, uh, thank you to the veterans here at the Motley Fool: yeah. Nick Crow, Greg Haygood, Micah Robinson, Jeff Lovett, and certainly all the veterans around the world. And Jeff thank Lovett, for you folks out there, is my daughter's soccer coach. Oh, really? Yeah. He's great. I'm gonna tell you what. He keeps those kids in line, and he took a kid. He took a, t- a team of beginners 
And, and the last game is this coming Saturday, and I tell you, it, it is a, a night and day difference. I just, I, nice. I'm very impressed. Fantastic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.